Hello and welcome to the Scholar Circle, scholarcircle.org. I'm Maria Armudian. In this hour, what do the normalization agreements between Arab countries and Israel mean for security in the region and for the future of the Palestinian people? Doug Becker explores. I'm Doug Becker. On August 13th, 2020, the United Arab Emirates and Israel signed a peace agreement normalizing relations. Then on September the 11th, Bahrain joined the agreement. These are called the Abraham Accords, a biblical reference intended to link Islam and Judaism religiously as a foundation of the agreement. This has also led to a normalization or a drive to normalization of relations with other countries, including Sudan. This was formalized in January of 2021 and conversations with Morocco about a willingness to normalize relations with Israel in exchange for an American recognition of the nation's claims in Western Sahara. On today's show, we will discuss these developments and the implications for peace in the region, implications for the Palestinian people, and the domestic political implications throughout the Arab world, as well as in Israel, and also potentially the United States. Our guests are Larry Brandt, who is the Robert Granford Wright Professor of International Relations and Middle East Studies at the University of Southern California. She's the author of Citizens Abroad, States and Migration in the Middle East and North Africa, and Official Stories, Politics and National Narratives in Egypt and Algeria. Mira Sukharov, who is the Professor of Political Science and University Chair of Teaching Innovation at Carleton University. She's the author of Borders and Belonging, a memoir, and co-editor of Social Justice in Israel-Palestine, Foundational and Contemporary Debates. And Hamoud Sali, who is Professor of Political Science and Middle East and the Associate Dean of the College of Social and Natural Sciences at California State University, Dominguez Hills. He is a political commentator for Arab media. Larry Brandt, let's start with you. Could you give us a description of the agreements and um, what sort of led to to these agreements earlier or last year? Perhaps the best way to look at these agreements is to understand them um, in part as a logical consequence of trends that were already underway. Uh, These were hailed as peace accords, but in fact, none of the states that have signed these agreements, um, neither the original two, Bahrain, United Arab Emirates, nor the Sudan, and then uh, subsequently Morocco, were ever at war with Israel formally. And so these are better understood as normalization agreements or continuation of normalizations because there were various forms of um, contact, communication, trade offices, and so on, which had been operating in uh, in some of these countries, certainly in the UAE. There had been an office that had been uh, operating uh, between Israel and Morocco, which had been closed temporarily. So this has been reopened as part of that accord, but it's not, that's not um, new. Uh, so in that respect, these are, these are, uh, continuations, uh, perhaps uh, deepenings of, of trans relationships that were already in place. Um, but I think that also needs to be seen in the context, of course, of what the Trump administration was doing, particularly what Jared Kushner, who was given the, you know, the Middle East portfolio, uh, along with, importantly, the U.S. ambassador to Israel, um, David Friedman, the kinds of, of things that they had been working on. And they, of course, had a very particular um, set of goals 
uh, for uh, what was happening in Israel-Palestine and the goals focused on how to, I think, best achieve the, uh, the best interests for Israel, which I suppose they saw as perhaps indistinguishable from for U.S. interests, but but certainly um, the, the Kushner family's longstanding interests uh, in in the West Bank. Um, it, anyway, so I think that when we look at what the Trump administration was interested in doing in the region, again, we need to see it not in terms of uh, somehow or other uh, addressing the needs of both sides, but how to come up with some sort of a big splash show. I mean, that's the kinds of things that. Uh, certainly appeal to Trump and the idea of uh, having Jared work on this sort of a peace pro you know, program that what was supposed to be the deal of the century, which of course is separate from these recent, uh, these recent accords, the deal of the century, which was also very much tied up in um, the relationship between Trump and Netanyahu and in Israeli domestic politics, which perhaps Mira will talk about uh, in a few minutes. So um, the, uh, the focus was on, uh, on Israeli interests, uh, Israeli and US interests, uh, to the extent the Trump administration saw them as, as coincident. And of course, any US administration has a, some, may have a somewhat different view of exactly how, how those interests intersect. Um, but uh, Trump, I think, was not particularly invested himself in anything other than seeing some kind of success that he could then use uh, for two parts of his, his domestic constituency. Uh, and one of those would be the part of the American Jewish community that is very supportive of sort of the Netanyahu line when it comes to Israeli politics. But the other part, and in some ways, I think even much more important, uh, it's been growing importance, is the combination that sort of the, the, the Christian Zionist, the uh, Christian fundamentalist, and even going moving on to I think some you know white supremacist and white nationalist views, uh, which uh, understand the the role of the state of Israel um, as fitting into their understanding of how they want to see politics either in the region or unfold in the United States. So, I guess um, that's what I would say sort of as an opening. Um, uh, uh, just brief survey, uh, how the Palestinians react to this, of course, this has been negative, uh, you know, across the board. Uh, I think it's also important to stress that while these um, negotiations of these accords of various sorts were touted uh, highly by the leaderships of these countries, um, there certainly has been significant uh, pushback from parts of the populations. We can't gauge exactly the degree of pushback because the UAE and Bahrain are two of the most repressive countries in the entire region. Uh, and so trying to figure out you know, what, what gets expressed on social media there is in no way a guide to what average people think. But in any case, um, it has put the Palestinians, it's, it's been a continuous process of um, further weakening their hand, further uh, alienating them from, from more and more of their territory. And I also think just completely undermining uh, any possibility of a two-state solution, but maybe we can talk about more of that later. Mayor Sukharov, these agreements certainly have bolstered the political fortunes of Benjamin Netanyahu in Israeli politics. How important are they within the Israeli the political spectrum and how are they playing sort of across the board within Israel? Well, Bibi Netanyahu, as he well knows, is in deep hot water right now with the Israeli public. So the upcoming elections in, in March are going to be as much a referendum on on whether the 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 public the Israeli public wants his continued leadership um, than it is about particular policies. But there's no doubt that reaching these kinds of agreements will help. No, will have helped the incumbent, which was 
Beebe. There was a poll um, soon after agreements were signed with the first two states you mentioned, UAE and Bahrain, and wide majorities of Israelis thought that the agreements would benefit Israel um, economically, politically, diplomatically, in terms of tourism. And then a, a smaller majority, but still still over 50% thought the deal will, will contribute positively to Israel's national security. So it's, it's probably, I think, very safe to say a political boon for the prime minister who, who managed to sign them, who was of course Bibi Netanyahu. Now, who are the major losers in the uh, under Israeli rule? And in, in that case, I think it's quite fair to say that it's the Palestinians, because really what these what these uh, agreements do is they, as um, Lari uh, well articulated, they normally, it's not so much that there was active war between states and they've now signed uh, ceasefire and then a full peace treaty. They're simply normalizing relations, they're, they're removing hostilities. Now normalization in one sense is a wonderful thing. I mean, you want to recognize people in your midst. You want to see the other. You want to recognize each other's humanity. And I guess in a in a you know scaling up to that in a state to state sense, the idea of collective recognition is a, is a good thing for for international relations. I would say at on its face. But remember that in the uh, region, nor the idea of normalization has been used as a as a both a carrot and kind of as a stick for rewarding or punishing Israeli actions vis-a-vis -vis the Palestinians. And of course, that's where the controversy lies as to whether one agrees with Israel's approach to the Palestinians, then one would find lack of normalization cruel and unfair and maybe even bigoted. But if one believes that Israel should be pressured to end the occupation, uh, free settlement building, extend fuller rights to Palestinians with in, uh, within its formal borders and within the West Bank, then the idea of withholding normalization can be an important bloodless symbolic tactic to affect change. So these are some of the dynamics I think that watchers are, are looking closely at. And Hamid uh, Sally, I know that in the past when states have moved towards normalization or in some cases actually no peace agreements with Israel. This has created fractures within the Arab world. And certainly the unity among Arab states and their policies vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Israel has taken a hit as a result of these agreements. How are these agreements being received throughout the Arab world? Well, first of all, it's really hard to speak of unity in the Arab world. Uh, the Arab system is really disintegrated, fragmented, and it's really divided along all the lines. Uh, connected to that is the relegation of the Palestinian cause as the primary national drive for Arab politics uh, that is now superseded by the conflicts in Libya, in Syria, and other places. This is to say that when this normalization uh, was brought up, you could see that there are different approaches. Officially, the line is very clear, particularly in the case of the Gulf states. There was a sense that the narrative has changed and that the conflict that the Gulf countries come to see, or particularly how they see the Palestinian cause, this so-called new generation or the line of, of the narrative emphasizes the idea that this is part of the old. Uh, the young generation is interested in employment, in you know, the new digital age. There is that narrative. 
Uh, now, in the social media, it's a different uh, case. There is the old uh, Arab-Israeli conflict, very well pronounced. But what is very interesting is that when you look at each specific case, you'll see that in the case of the United Arab Emirates, there was a lot of emphasis on the national interest, on that this decision serves the national interest of the Emiratis. And the media and the general public made a big sort of... Uh, statement that uh, because the countries are not in peace, it didn't make sense. This is purely designed to serve the Emiratis' national interest. And we talk about the old, you know, language where there is already uh, sort of rapprochement between the countries. This has just come in the open. And then we've seen the case of both Sudan and the, and the Bahrain. The media did not give a lot of importance to it. The Israelis, in fact, I think the defensive minister was asked why there was no importance given to the treaty. He said, well, Bahrain is a small country, so we should not make a big deal out of it. So even the Israelis undermine it. And the Sudan is the same thing. There was a lot of emphasis on the idea that the Sudan get a break from the $330 million that they were supposed to pay for the families victim of the terrorist attack back in 1998. Uh, there was also other things, other benefits that the Sudanese were given. But the case that got a lot of interest, and it's getting a lot of sort of uh, potential problems in the region, is the recognition or the rapprochement between the Israelis and, and Morocco and its linkage to the Western Sahara. Now, when you look at the American position up to this point, it has been since 19, probably 79, some people could go that, or 2005, it has been uh, supportive of the Western Sahara, the right to have self-determination. But the U.S. has been pushing for internal autonomy of the Western Sahara within the Morocco. So when the recognition or this rapprochement was linked to the Western Sahara, of course, it created huge problems. So the emphasis in the region has been on the reaction in the United States, particularly the opinion pieces that James Baker wrote, uh, Jameson Hoffi in, uh, in the Senate speech, and other articles that seems to underline and call for uh, the U.S. administration to be uh, cautious and there are impl implications. The biggest concern in the region is instability, uh, creating new conditions for a region to be uh, in conflict, particularly within uh, the Western Sahara, because the Polisario has already declared no longer respecting the ceasefire. So that creates problems with them. But in addition to that, the Morocco will get about a billion dollars in arms purchases. Their military is very sophisticated. The United States has about 10 uh, military bases in Morocco, a sort of military bases called temporary places in Libya, in Mali, and in Niger. So those places will create huge problems. In addition uh, to the vast amount of money that is spent in Tunisia, we, where you have about $600 million spent on civil society, trying to bring this American democracy to Tunisia, and also the same in Morocco and Libya. Those efforts are seen with the United States taking sides specifically with, with Morocco in this case, especially if they push for it. 
And there are marks that could be sort of seen whether the current administration will change it. If that continues, the potential for creating sort of a dangerous situation is, is very high. What the Algerians and the scholars seem to agree is that it is best for the United States to separate the recognition of the Western Sahara with the normalization. And it could take concrete steps. One of the steps is the idea of not moving forward with the building or the construction of a consulate. Initially, back in October, in fact, was supposed to be built in Casablanca. This is an American embassy that is supposed uh, sort of to a degree of an embassy that will serve the, uh, the entire Northern Africa. That construction is now moved to inside the Western Sahara. So if the Biden administration is to stop that, that will be a sign uh, that the region sort of will live with the neutral United States on the position, basically going back to the old uh, Obama's position in particular. It's been very um, sort of tense. And everybody's waiting now, the region is waiting what uh, President Joe Biden will do next. You're listening to Scholar Circle. I'm Doug Becker. We're discussing the normalization agreements between several Arab countries and Israel with Lori Brandt of the University of Southern California, Mira Sukharov of Carleton University, and Hamut Sali of California State University at Dominguez Hills. Now, Lori Brandt, some issues that Hamut had raised, certainly the role of the United States is playing in all of this, and in one constituency, certainly, that seems to be influenced by these uh, normalization agreements are, you know, those who will profit from arms sales. I've heard certainly one of the descriptions of what's going on is that these, in many ways, are arms deals that enabling the U.S. to provide weapons to, you know, countries like UAE at a time when there's been some criticism of U.S. arms sales in places like Saudi Arabia because of the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. Is it fair to say, ultimately, the, the American interest in this is this ability to sell arms and to be able to influence some of these different conflicts like, say, Western Sahara, obviously, you know, Syria, Yemen, you know, as uh, Hamoud sort of made clear in his comments, I mean, different states have different reasons and they have different uh, ways of benefiting from these, these normalization agreements. Um, I think in, I mean, clearly with the UAE, there was the hope that having this normalization with Israel would remove a, an Israeli veto on, uh, on future arms sales, or at least on some future arms sales. Uh, because, of course, I mean, Israelis have, uh, I mean, and of course, I mean, the Israelis have uh, made clear with the Americans, and the Americans, I think, have always uh, honored this, that, the, that they will never sell to other countries uh, weapons of a, of a level of sophistication greater than what Israel already has. And so, and any kind of arms sales of, of any significant um, nature, I uh, have always, you know, so I think raised suspicions in Israel before. With these normalization agreements, I think the, the belief was that this would reduce that. Um, at this point, though, the Biden administration is reviewing the the sale, uh, the the weapon, the uh, um, aircraft sales to UAE. So it's not clear. There a lot. I think a number of these things are going to be reviewed by the Biden administration. So uh, there were some elements that I think were again sort of particular to the, the nature of Trump, his view of the world, the people that he had working with him. Um, now, you know, the, the desire to sell arms in the Middle East is not new. It certainly well predates uh, this administration and, and others before it. So the, the desire for, you know, companies to take advantage of the huge market that, that exists for, for weapons of various sorts 
Um, I mean, that's not going to go away, and I don't expect that the lobbying for those sorts of things is going to diminish. What we'll have to see is what sorts of things these states want to buy and whether the fact that they have these normalization agreements with Israel is going to make a, a big difference on that, on that front. Um, just in terms of, you know, with Sudan, there was, uh, as, as uh, Hamoud mentioned, there was, of course, the, the uh, special deal that they got on the reparations that they were supposed to pay, uh, but they also got taken off the terrorism list. Uh, and that was a huge part of what 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 they wanted out of this. Uh, and with regard to Morocco, I think it's also important to mention. I mean, this is a violation of international law. What the U.S. Uh, what the U.S. did, and it's not the first time U.S. violates international law. I mean, the recognition of Israeli annexation of territories also is a violation, and so on. So there are a number of elements in these these last sets of agreements that are extremely problematic. Um, the Biden administration is reviewing some, um, and it's so it's it's not clear to me, for example, where where the Biden administration is going to come down on what happened with regard to the uh, recognition of um, Moroccan sovereignty over the Western Sahara. Um, but with regard to what the the various policies with uh, toward Palestine or Palestinians themselves, I mean, there have been some. Um, there clearly is going to be some. Uh, pull back in some areas, but they're not going to move the embassy back to Tel Aviv. That's clearly going to stay there. Uh, there simply is going to be sort of, you know, a reinitiation of the, the aid to the, the, uh, to the PA, uh, reinstating U.S. funding to UNRWA, uh, also apparently reopening a mission in East Jerusalem. Uh, so, I mean, there, there will be some um, reversal of what the Trump administration was interested in doing, but uh, not, not completely so. Mayor Sukharov, as Larry Brand has pointed out, the Trump administration it certainly isn't unique in their support for Israel, but, but had levels of support that were somewhat beyond what American positions have you know, typically been mentioning, for instance, the, the moving of the embassy to Jerusalem. How is the Israeli public and our political actors responding to the fact the U.S. has a new president? Are there, are there concerns with these reviews? And how much of this is a partisan issue uh, within Israel? I think Israelis are always cautious when a new uh, administration comes into place in Washington. And they, in many ways, the majority of Israelis were pleased with what they saw as Trump's um, very vocal support for the status quo and for uh, entrenching Israel's hold on Jerusalem, for example. Of course, moving the embassy is a change to the status quo, but it, it means that it's reinforcing the existing relationship that the Israeli government has with the, the um, borders of Jerusalem. Uh, and their most recent memory of a democratic administration may indeed be uh, when John Kerry as Secretary of State presided over a resolution that was very critical of Israeli settlements. And that was right at the end of the Obama term. And it's very, so it's likely that many Israelis will be watching very cautiously to see what kind of critiques they receive. But remember that it was Obama that signed a massive 10 year aid, de aid deal to um, Israel between the U.S. and Israel. So I really don't think, I don't think there's any, um, there's certainly no rational basis for Israelis to think that the U.S. under Biden will turn away from it. And Hamoud Sali, again, you had referenced this, this shift. How much do you see the Biden administration continuing the, the Trump administration uh, policies? And how much do you think these reviews might result in a new look at U.S. 
Arab relations? There are several reasons. The obvious one is that we tend, you know, political scientists or international relations will tell you that American, you know, American foreign policy is characterized by its continuity. And when some differences happen, it doesn't, you know, touch the core. But what's very interesting is that it's really, as, as Laurie said, stated earlier, it varies from one state to another. But there are some issues that come about more. For example, the latest terrorist attack in, in Iraq, you have sort of an official, I think, uh, the prime minister who said we need help. And this is led by uh, foreigners. That is by terrorists who are aligned with other countries. That's also an indication of the debate or the struggle that exists within the Iraqi system in terms of, you know, President Trump uh, withdraw the troops. There are only 1,500 there. So whether Biden will come in and continue that withdrawal or not. Uh, so we know B Biden also has an old uh, position in that perspective that he was in, in known to have published an article or an opinion piece where he thought of Iran as better divided into three territories. So there is that debate there that exists within Iran, and, and this is surfacing. So whether Biden will follow Trump or not, I think it's still something to look at and to watch. I don't see as a major difference. I think where we are, where the focus is centered at this point, particularly in the Gulf region, is Iran. What will Biden do with this idea that he wants to go back to negotiation? The current position is you could take it as a state in position. And, and, and if you follow Joe Biden, you could see it's part of that strategy. You start with a big idea and then everything is negotiating. The fact that he's calling for inclusion of uh, a negotiation uh, over the ballistic, uh, was it, uh, missiles is a non-starter. The Iranians see this, uh, their defense, a part of their defense system. And it's an issue that was there for a long time. The United States took uh, in their Kerry and, and Clinton administration and Obama uh, many years uh, to sort of to, uh, to reach an agreement where the Iranian felt safe. And that was one way for them uh, to have some kind of defense system against the region. So, so the discussion there, everybody is watching it. The Emirati, of course, uh, have a major concern, major uh, sort of uh, what I call a really psychological threat. Uh, it's very interesting. I mean, Dubai has huge economic interest with Iran every time. But the political debate is also very interesting in the, in the region. The security, uh, UAE feel uh, threatened uh, by Iran. The same thing with the Saudis. So you have that security there where the United States or Joe Biden particularly is watched. Remember that Trump uh, was very liked by the region. You know, he brought a lot to the region. In Northern Africa, I think it's mixed. Uh, there is that perception that the region, particularly in the, in the Maghreb, they want that business deal. They want Trump to have economic aid. And the fact that, you know, there was a, on a table agreements that Tunisia was trying to get a sort of free zone agreement, or what you call it, free trade agreement with, uh, with the United States. Uh, also, there, there was security agreement. Algerians are interested in, in economic investment. 
There is about a billion dollar that uh, Trump was promised and to invest in the, in, uh, in, the, in the region. So that economic or that transactional thing that uh, uh, Trump has appeared to the region. But uh, the security issues, uh, the latest uh, normalization with Israel really changed that. So Biden now is expected to reverse that. And again, it varies from one state to another. The Moroccan definitely don't want a reversal. They want uh, sort of to pursue that. Well, the Algerians are pushing in that direction. And what's very, very interesting in the debate in the region, the, uh, just before the end of the uh, Trump administration, there was a delegation from the State Department, uh, AFRICOM, and, and I believe the defense that visited the region. I think it, it went to, uh, to Jordan and then uh, Algeria and Morocco. Well, out of the blue, uh, one of the officials uh, made a statement that the United States is not interested in building a military base in Western Sahara territory. Nobody was talking in the Algerian about build, building military base, where they were talking specifically about the, uh, the removal uh, of, the, with, of the recognition of the Western Sahara. That's the issue. But it tells you how dynamic is the region and how, uh, what is it, uh, how the perception varies from one area. But overall, uh, there is more optimism about Joe Biden in the Northern Africa than in the Gulf region or the other part of the region. So, Laurie Brand, when I heard of these normalization deals, the first thing that came to mind with me was the impact this had on the Palestinian population, that at least officially Arab countries have been resistant to normalize relations or strike peace agreements with Israel without some settlement of the Palestinian issue, Palestinian statehood, two-state solution, etc. There's been no reference to the Palestinians in these normalization regimes. It seems fairly obvious to me the Palestinians are one of the big losers in these agreements. What does this mean? for Palestinian statehood or some resolution that gives Palestinians sovereignty and some degree of justice? The Palestinians are big losers. I mean, they've, they've, they've been in the process of losing for, you know, for, for decades. Um, I guess I would say that um, the, the coming of the Trump administration uh, should have been a signal that things would, uh, would probably get uh, worse, uh, in, in, even in terms of sort of, of symbolic things. Um, but also that, I mean, on the ground, you have just the continual, inc- you know, uh, gradual but, but ongoing dispossession, uh, continuing, you know, expropriation of land, and then all of the things that go along with that. I mean, we also, we had just recently the, uh, the Israeli human rights organization, Betsedem, which used the word apartheid for the first time in describing the conditions uh, in which Palestinians live. Uh, obviously, some people have called for the use of that before, but I, I think it, 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 it highlights the situation that Palestinians find themselves in uh, now, which is that um, while Oslo, the Oslo Accords uh, in the early 90s seemed to promise the possibility of the emergence of, a, of, a, of an independent Palestinian state. I mean, that was the way the Palestinians understood the end terms, not seemingly the way that, um, that the Israelis did. Uh, but I guess, I mean, Edward Said, who was an early critic of Oslo, seemed to have understood earlier than, than a lot of other people that what this ultimately was gonna mean on the ground was a gradual, yes, you have a Palestinian administration, the PA, um, which 
exercises sort of less and less authority over less and less territory. And the only significant authority that it really seems to exercise is security co coordination authority with the Israelis. So to further, um, you know, further entrap Palestinians in what's already an extremely coercive, um, repressive uh, situation. So we have, it's, it's almost, it almost seems like with the Trump administration, we have almost the closing of the book, if you will. I mean, the final, I mean, if, if, if people have been talking for a long time um, about the two-state solution being dead, and a lot of people were resistant to that for a variety of reasons. Uh, people resistant, those who wanted to see an independent Palestinian state, who thought that that sort of sovereignty was something that Palestinians were entitled to. Um, but also for those who wanted to um, to see a an end to this this conflict, uh, in which uh, the Jewish character of the state of Israel would not be uh, ultimately called into question. Uh, so as long as you have a two-state solution, you can continue to maintain that, okay, you can have one Jewish state, and then you have this Palestinian state, and, and Jews can exercise their right to self-determination in the Jewish state and Palestinians in their Palestinian state. As you continue to foreclose the possibilities for anything meaningful in terms of Palestinian sovereignty, and I would say that that's basically completely foreclosed at this point, um, then what's left? You can either... Um, sort of continue to uh, work on the fiction. I mean, Palestinians now are they're talking about having elections uh, at the end of this year. And there's supposed to be a meeting in Egypt, another, yet another, the umpteenth uh, iteration of a meeting to try and bring about some sort of Palestinian reconciliation between Fatah and Hamas. Um, and the way that the Palestinians got to this sort of impasse themselves is another ugly story of, of you know, betrayal and, and coordination, security coordination among the U.S., Israel, Jordan, Egypt, and so on. But that's, that's another story. Um, so that, but, but increasingly, Palestinians um, are, are talking about the fact that they're, at this stage, it uh, doesn't mean ultimate renunciation, God knows, you know, in the future what happens, but that there is no uh, there, there's very little likelihood of any kind of a meaningful, a meaningful sovereignty for Palestinians. And so therefore, the, the place that the struggle needs to focus is now for uh, civil rights for Palestinians um, in uh, both in increasing rights for Palestinians in Israel, but also uh, rights for Palestinians in the West Bank and, and, uh, and Gaza. And that doesn't mean just the kinds of... Um, gestures which have been part of, of uh, a series of uh, suggestions about peace accords where you, you know, if you can provide Palestinians with some sort of economic possibilities that that will, you know, that that, that will somehow allay their or, or lead them to set aside their concerns. No, this is talking about a, a, a drive for full rights as in the framework of a one state solution. Um, so I think, you know, increasingly I'm reading and seeing these kinds of hearing these kinds of discussions among Palestinians. I think they're going to become more prominent uh, because I, the, nothing the Biden administration is going to do. I mean, they say that now they're, they're resurrecting this two state solution, but it's anyway. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the, 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 the time seems to have passed, at least at this point in history. And so now the emphasis really needs to be on the, the, the struggle for for civil, political human rights. It's a really important point, the idea that we've moved so far away from a two-state solution, the emphasis should be on advocating the civil rights of Palestinians. Mayor Sukharov, I know that's been a significant 
challenge international debate, certainly domestic debate within Israel, about the ball sort of being moved further and further away from uh, recognition of Israeli responsibility for, for the Palestinian community, both within pre-1967 Israel and in the territories. In particular, one story that I'd love to have you comment on is this question about how successful Israel has been with vaccinations for COVID, but uh, the Palestinian community completely outside of that, the seeming lack of interest and a sense of responsibility to the Palestinian population. What ultimately is, is the status of that and, and where is that going? Well, I agree wholeheartedly with what with Laurie's analysis about Israel's relationship with the Palestinians and the need to push for civil rights now. Now, of course, the, the major challenge is that Israel has very strong narratives and ways of framing the issue that um, punts the question of whether the pal- whether they, Israelis, are responsible for granting Palestinian rights or whether the fault lies with Palestinian leadership. So Alari mentioned uh, the possibility of reconciliation between Fatah and Hamas and Israelis will be, well, the Israeli government, Israeli establishment, though, no, of course, not all Israelis think alike, but talking about those with primary, those whose uh, views are primarily reflected in the current parliament. And that's who I'm talking about when I say Israelis, just as a shorthand. Israelis will say that the fall, that the fact that Palestinians are way many years overdue for elections means that they are fundamentally, not necessarily in a racist way about Palestinian character, but that the Palestinian p- political system as it exists currently is fundamentally corrupt and problematic. And so they will, Israelis are able to then say that, um, the Palestinians, Palestinian Authority needs to get its house in order before we deal with it. Um, they, Israelis, of course, will be more likely to call the occupied territories disputed territories to show that this is part of an ongoing conflict that just hasn't yet been resolved. Um, even the idea of occupation is controversial in some Israeli circles. So there's certainly, oh, and Israel will say that they did end the occupation in Gaza and look what they were rewarded with, Hamas missiles. Of course, that isn't seeing the full story either because while Israel did pull its ground troops out of Gaza and its settlers in 2005, they uh, soon after, once Hamas took over, they have maintained, uh, along with Egypt, air, um, ground control, um, along with Egypt, and then in addition, airspace control, naval control, and control over the population registry. So Israel does maintain a significant hold over the Gaza Strip, and that's something that many Israelis don't want to acknowledge. You asked about vaccination. Yes, there are Israeli human rights organizations calling for Israel to abide by its obligations under international law as the occupying power, such that Israel as the occupying power is responsible for facilitating uh, to the best of its ability in um, consultation and in accordance with the governing authority, with the Palestinian Authority, to facilitate vaccinations of Palestinians. That isn't happening to the degree that it should be. So that's, of course, something that that, um, human rights watchers are watching closely. And Hamid Sami, first of all, I'd love your reaction to the idea that really the focus should be on civil rights for the Palestinians. And ultimately, how important is, is the Palestinian issue in the calculations of other Arab leaders? Or have they kind of washed their hands of it and decided they want to move on to other issues? 
you have among the people, and again, it varies from one region to another. Among the people, there is a strong support for the Palestinians. Uh, and you find this in the whole historical narrative there. You also have it in uh, sermons on Fridays about the support of the Palestinians and all the debates that you have there. But at the official level or the media, the region has been more preoccupied uh, with this uh, civil war. You know, you have the Arab Spring, you have the wars in Libya, Yemen. The states have become more uh, interested in their sort of national interest more than anything else. The fear that I, I am going to be next to be overthrown uh, by a popular mass uh, or another revision of uh, Egypt or Tunisia has sort of made the states more focused uh, on their national interests. Why is this important? In the past, when you have the official media outside there promoting the Palestinian cause, even if it's a half-hearted, but it gets the national news, it's reported about. So the core issue remains very important. And there is a sense that there is a division there between those who are opposing the normalization, which is really few countries. But at the top of that list is the Algerians who came before the United Nations General Assembly back in September or after that, where the president basically said that he doesn't believe in normalization and the Palestinian rights are the first priority. That got a lot of social media, a lot of reaction, and the Algerians were praised for that. But what's happening is that normalization is a fait accompli. There is no going back to it. The degree of how this would happen, there is a huge conversation now that it tells that the, the Israelis are already doing treaties with the Arab world. The only thing is now it's in the open. But I think there will be some kind of revival under Biden with the old concept of the MENA region summit meetings. Remember, this is the idea that was created to integrate Israel and the Arab world. And that's supposed to be going along the negotiation that was happening with Oslo. That idea was killed in 1997, I think after the third or the fourth summit, when Netanyahu came to power and what was supposed to be a summit at the national level become really a conference. What's very interesting at that conference is that Netanyahu was very clear that he really didn't want uh, to have economic relations with the Arab world. He wanted to strengthen Israel's relationship with the European and specifically what he said is that the Arabs are too backward, too awkward, less developed. They have nothing to give to Israel except labor. And he was thinking about technology. At the time, you know, Israel is very advanced in information technology. And he didn't think that the Arab world has that. So he was against it. Of course, there are reasons for this. There is a political contest. But the point is that in the current Israeli sort of uh, political structure, that MENA region, that MENA idea, will it see light? Will it be pursued? I think Biden will push for that just to sort of create a, a sort of a balance between showing that he's interested in the integration of Israel in the Arab world, and that will satisfy perhaps the Israeli lobby and other pressure, but it also be in line what the Arab world has been doing and sort of it fits well with the idea of bringing peace to the region. Supposedly, the Palestinian cause will benefit from this, that there will be some kind of 
help, economic help. We've seen so the conference that Kushner did in Bahrain, all of that. But in the end, the Palestinian issue is really a reflection of what's kept of the Arab world system. I mean, it, the Arab world is in crisis. Even the debate, when you hear it, it's no longer about Arab solidarity or anything of the sort. I mean, we have scholars who come and, and quotes or imams who quote the, the Quran to say, you know, Israel should exist. I mean, that's no way you could see that, uh, that from religious uh, leaders. So the dynamic changes. And, you know, the Palestinians also did not make it easier on them. The internal struggle that we've seen all these years have sort of legitimized the Arab or give credence to the Arab world leaders uh, to sort of shy away from it. And a good example is the United Arab Emirates relationships to the Palestinians. I mean, the United Arab Emirates has cut ties back, and I think since 2014. And now at this point, when they normalize, when they normalize the relation with Israel and settlement was one an issue, uh, the Palestinians' leadership could not understand it. They wanted uh, perhaps the UAE to live up to its sort of support by deed rather than word. So a uh, last point, I think one of the concerns of the Palestinians at this point, and you find this in the Arab world, is that there is more emphasis on the international legitimacy on, on the Palestinian cause. Hanan Ashrawi said it, uh, I think, two or three years ago when she said, that we need to minimize the damage that the Israelis are causing to the Palestinian cause. And one way is to hold on to the international law. The Oslo agreement, Dennis Ross in particular, uh, tried to shift to take away that international legitimacy by creating Oslo to uh, supersede the international law. So the agreements that are signed by the Israelis and, and the Palestinians, let's say rights of the refugees, uh, whatever issue, even though it may be against principle of international law, but as long as the, the two countries agree on it, uh, that sort of is legitimate enough. And that's really where the discussion issues, I think the Palestinians, that's where they're, they're focused on. And the fact that uh, the Palestinians are a member of the International Court of Justice, that also helps make their case. You're listening to Scholar Circle. We're discussing the future of the Palestinians in light of the normalization agreements between several Arab countries and Israel. Lori Brand, my understanding of the Kushner plan for peace was in essence delinking the, the political factors, whether it be statehood, even certain legal obligations to the Palestinians in exchange of a promise for investment, kind of using investment as a way to try to depoliticize this question. First, how accurate is that description? And secondly, does that hold any promise towards some resolution, some resolution to this issue? I think that's a, a good way to, to sort of briefly summarize it. And the answer is no. This has, I mean, that's it's part of what I was referring to earlier, that this is sort of a, a reiteration, if in somewhat you know, different form, of earlier suggestions that if you can just provide the Palestinians with some kind of economic relief, then they'll somehow either give up their national aspirations. Um, you know, it hasn't, it, it didn't work before and it's not gonna work now. Um, what, they, what the Trump administration managed to do was to a certain extent sideline the Palestinians, um, but also increasingly crush them. Um, through, uh, you know, refusal to, I mean, the, the cutting of aid to UNRWA is sort of, uh, for me, uh, almost in the same category as, as taking kids from their parents at the border. I mean, this is, this is funding that goes to basic human services like healthcare and, and education and food, uh, you know, support to some of the, the, the poorest Palestinians. 
Um, and it's important, I think also, I, I don't want to, I know we're getting close to the end of time here. I, I don't want to be left out of the discussion. The, the Palestinians who are, are not in either, you know, present day Israel or the West Bank and Gaza, mm -hmm. um, there are, you know, large refugee populations. And while many Palestinians have, you know, become part of our diaspora and they become successful and they moved elsewhere, there are still large extremely vulnerable, both politi economically, politically, and, and certainly now medically uh, health, in health terms, uh, communities in Lebanon, um, in Syria, um, who've been were ter you know, terribly affected by the Syrian civil war. And now the, 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 the dreadful crisis that, that, that's in Lebanon, these people are still there. These people still were promised a right to return um, by UN resolutions, and they can't just be sort of, uh, you know, imagined away uh, from from some sort of a, a long-term um, solution. So I would just say, I mean, Jared Kushner, again, um, he knew nothing um, except what he wanted, and this idea, the idea that that you know, holding out some sort of economic incentives was somehow a great new idea that constituting a deal of the century, just was an indication of, of his ignorance, but also his 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 lack of of real concern. I mean, this was again a sidelining or a crushing a combination of of Palestinians under the Trump administration, and that's why it seems to me that the 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 people who are talking about a one state solution because they've the 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 the, the, the territorial ability that Palestinians to have some sort of a sovereign entity now seems to have been gradually, um, uh, you know, uh, taken, I mean, gradually taken away from them by the Israelis, but also with, with the Trump administration uh, recognizing settlements. Um, and, and so this, it seems to me that the next phase in the struggle is for full rights in what would be a binational state. And Mira Sukharov, Larry Brand really kind of highlights one of the real challenges Israel faces here, that if there's a one state solution, there's a very large Palestinian community currently within that one state, and of course, large refugee populations. How does Israel, and in particular, I know your research on narratives on the founding of the state of Israel and the in sort of the definition of the state of Israel, how does Israel manage this large Palestinian community that would be within one state, I would imagine they wouldn't want ethnic cleansing or you know, driving populations out of this state. And so what Larry Brand is advocating for is some sort of binational state with full civil rights. And I would imagine the right to vote, the right to politically organize would have to be included in that. What does that mean for the Israeli state? Well, right now there is a, what Ian Lustig in his new book, paradigm lost calls the one state reality. So that instead of saying that we have a blank slate and should we consider a one state solution or a two state solution, we take what Laurie was saying earlier about the two state solution really being dead for all intents and purposes, as far as we can see things and say that there is this one state reality. So either we continue to enable Israelis to continue ruling over the existing Palestinians within those existing borders from the river to the sea in an unequal way with lack of basic rights, or we outsiders put some sort of pressure on Israel to extend rights. And so, of course, Israel doesn't want to, right? There's every incentive for, in, in a sort of basic materialist rational sense, there's every incentive for Israel to continue the status quo. They're not losing that much. So it's a matter of um, enabling those organizations and citizens within Israel who are pushing for change to bolster them and helping them see a new possible reality um, where uh, identity, where Israeli Jewish 
identity is uh, still nurtured and um, supported through new rights-based arrangements. When you say rights-based arrangements, I want to follow this up. Does that include the right to vote, the right to politically organize? And what, what does that mean for the Jewish character of the state? Well, it would absolutely have to include the right to vote and every other democratic right extended to Israeli citizens currently would have to be extended to all the Palestinians who live between, uh, who live in Israel proper and who live in the West Bank who and Gaza, we could discuss separately, but it, there are many uh, similarities in some ways to the situation in the West Bank. And then instead of Israel thinking about its instead of Israeli Jews thinking about their identity in individual, well, in collective terms as defined by demographics, they would be thinking about their identity as a cultural, um, as a cultural inheritance. So that it doesn't matter how many Jews there are relative to how many Palestinians there are, it matters, we could say, how many Hebrew films are produced each year, how many works of liter Hebrew literature are produced, how much um, new thinking about Jewish texts are um, created. And so that you start thinking about culture as something that can be grown and then you sort of start expanding the pie alongside Arabic culture and alongside Palestinian culture and the Muslim and Christian variants of that uh, as they're expressed in Palestinian society. Fascinating this way in which to reframe these questions. So I'll ask Herman Sally, this will be the last question as far as reframing the contemporary conditions and the ways in which we've been viewing this conflict. Do you have ideas that we can try to reframe this in a way that might make it potentially resolvable in a way that's not just rejecting the, the, the rights, the political personhood of the Palestinians? One is tempted to say that you have, for the Palestinians, one of the most well-educated, best-educated society in the entire Middle East by the number of doctors and all of that. So one narrative could be is that the, the Palestinians sort of, one day one, somehow uh, their cause will be sort of recognized and their rights will be recognized. And, and that's sort of the optimistic, the idealistic. Uh, the reality is, is that there is so much talk about the narrative, the negotiation for the sake of negotiations. There is also the facts on the ground that Israel has become a very strong entity militarily, that the Israeli society also feels safe, uh, that the left or the, you know, the, the organization that once uh, were strong advocate of the, uh, of the Palestinian cause are missing in action, all of that. So there is that narrative of the crisis Maybe you could say the left, but it's also of the people who are advocating for a just solution to the Palestinians. So I really don't know how to look at it, except that it's a crisis of the Palestinians' leadership that is also a reflection of the crisis that is happening in the Arab world. And a solution to the Palestinian cause is, of course, from internal, because you have to fight for that right. If a civil rights movement uh, would be one, one thing, uh, like Edward Said was pushing for, if a one-state solution will be within, it has to be from within. But without the support also of the outside partners, uh, the Arab world and allies, the Palestinians may be lost in, in that struggle as well. 
Thank you all very much. We've been discussing the normalization agreements between Arab countries and Israel, the implications for the Palestinians, the implications for the Arab world, and finally, a call to reconceptualize the conflict in ways that could be much more uh, supportive of full political participation and representation of all peoples within the region. Our guests today have been Larry Brand, the Robert Brand Granford Wright Professor of International Relations and Middle East Studies at the University of Southern California. She is the author of Citizens Abroad, States and Migration in the Middle East and North Africa, and Official Stories, Politics and National Narratives in Egypt and Algeria. Mira Sukharov, who is Professor of Political Science and the University Chair of Teaching Innovation at Carleton University. She's the author of Borders and Belonging, a memoir, and co-editor of Social Justice and Israel-Palestine, Foundational and Contemporary Debates. And Hamoud Sali, Professor of Political Science and Middle East Studies, Associate Dean of the College of Social and Natural Sciences at California State University, Dominguez Hills. He is a political commentator for Arab media. Thank you all very much. Thank you to our guests and to you for listening. The Scholar Circle team includes Doug Becker and Lillian Inc., contributing hosts, Ankine Agassian and Melissa Chiprin, managing producers, Sad Dongre, our webmaster, Tim Page and Mike Hurst, engineers and technical support. I'm Maria Armudian, and we'll see you next week.